0: I think in order to understand a culture, you should learn the language and you should eat the food. And uh, I think these Chinese restaurants around the world—not just in America, but also in Canada, Mexico—because this book, *American Chinese Restaurant*, that's edited by myself and Haiming Lu, it's not just uh, a USA story. It's a—you know—it's a Latin American story. Chinese restaurants are all over Latin America, right? Wow. Uh, it's a huge th- uh, restaurant. I mean, they have shaped and uh, impacted. Peru, Argentina, uh, Chile, and these are not in the discourse, and um, so Alan, the reason why I also wanted to edit this book was because every time I read, as an academic, I would read these like stories of racism on Chinese you know, restaurateurs, you know, they weren't allowed, the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act that excluded Chinese people from coming to the U.S. That's true, and, and all these things are right. And I would read these these things, and they would mention Chinese restaurants as a way how the restaurant workers, I'm sorry, the railroad workers, after they were done with the railroad, they couldn't get back, go back to China, so they started Chinese restaurants. And I thought that was an interesting story, and definitely interesting. But I, having re- been raised in a Chinese restaurant, knew that there are so many other stories of Positive opportunities for these like poor Chinese people, but also interactions. So a lot of people don't understand that Chinese restaurants are safe spaces for lots of minorities. So Jewish Americans during uh, Christmas time, they go to Chinese restaurants. During their uh, birthdays, they go to Chinese restaurants, and so it is a space open to another ethnic group that you know lets them eat their food. And because it doesn't have that much dairy, and they're open on Christmas, mm. it becomes and it becomes part of their modernity, right? And it's not in the history, and I want to write about one day, is the fact that African-Americans were excluded in so many spaces in America, but not Chinese restaurants. And so you have a lot of African-Americans who just have these stories of going to Chinese restaurants, such as my Chinese restaurant in the Midwest, and having these, like, generational stories. And I think that those stories, I mean, yes, there were racism, but those other stories of, like, this massive, um, kind of, like, safe space, as Mm -hmm. you say, those are not really told in the literature and that's so that's why i wanted to edit this book
1: someone's opinion may contradict yours where's my friend alan it's all about your perspective who are we and what is the nature of this reality five four three two one What's up, everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sokian. We are still on site at the American Anthropological Association's annual meeting in Vancouver, British Columbia, in Canada. This is our second partnership with them. We are now going to be talking about American Chinese restaurants and so much more. We have Dr. Jenny Bond joining us on the show. Hello. Hi, Jenny. Hi. Thanks for coming on the program.
0: Thank you for inviting me.
1: I'm really excited to talk about your new book and much more. I want to start with some of the questions that we love asking our guests. Do you think that we're really all one?
0: Um, Well, Leslie White is a very famous uh, anthropologist and he talks about energy and how we all have different energies, right? But we're all part of the universe energy, so um, to some extent, I, I do believe that we're all interconnected and um, in terms of energy, yeah. And and I can send you positive energy, you can send me negative energy. There's like, I I think that we are all connected energy. I I believe that when you come into a room, your energy before you come into a room will affect the room subtly. And so I believe that all of us have energy wherever we go and people can feel it on a subconscious uh, level. So
1: so much of what you just said about energy is, super present from the initial moments of whatever you call it the Big Bang or creation or all that is or whatever you want to call it, source, until now and how this path of all coming from one until now has deep roots in interconnectedness. The air that I breathe in is the air phytoplankton and trees breathe out. I take a bite of an apple. It comes from the power of the sun. And so the the lack of children understanding that, feeling separate, rather than feeling interconnected, would you say that that, those feelings of separation, like what indigenous tribes from around the world are trying to remind modernity about, would you say that that's the root of many of our issues?
0: I think there's many roots, but definitely the interconnectedness nature is something that is a definite root of disconnected, and I would definitely say that our electronics is one of the things, like social media, Mm Uh, the addiction to social media and also the addiction to our electronics is um, you know part of that root of of feeling you, making you feel disconnected. Um, I live in California with Silicon Valley. There's many uh, people who are spending multiple million dollars for you to stay on that app for as long as possible. Uh, And they're doing everything they can to keep you on that computer, on your computer, to to like it. Uh, All these masterminds to make you feel, so it's for advertising to make more income for them. So that is, I think one of the many routes, but definitely I would say like um, this new kind of you know, this new really huge change for humans that we're constantly connected in a way that makes us almost disconnected is one of the roots. So yes.
1: Very interesting. Yes. Yes, I, I like how you um, bring into the equation, um, especially on a time, time uh, scale um, visibility here on the millions of years of human evolution. We're looking at just the very, very last 10 or so years of having these devices around mm-hmm. us and using them all the time, pulling at them 150 times a day, the business Hours. plans hours of our time the business plans of the attention economy being tied to advertising um this is a very also um interesting thing you know being able to query civilizations knowledge at my fingertips is also very interesting so um that there's, um, I'm really excited for the next wave of, of conscious evolution that comes and builds the next ways that we connect with devices because mm-hmm. it will be much more around um, the interconnectedness and less so about um, profiteering on people's attention. Um, Jenny, I'm curious, what are your thoughts about the overall purpose of reality? Why are we here?
0: That's a deep question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We love
1: asking the deep ones on the program. Why
0: are we here? Yeah. I don't know if I can answer for everyone on earth. I can only answer for myself. Yeah. Um, I think I'm here for a purpose. I have my own motto. And um, I don't know about other people, like why they're here. Um, they probably have their own reasonings. But my <laughs> motto is to create culture. Two, use my uh, privilege and power to help um, oppressed uh, populations. Three, um, to create what I don't see. And mm. four, my last motto is reveal hidden stories. And so that's how why I'm here. And that's uh, from living my life, that's uh, my purpose. Uh, other people, I don't know. They have, I'm sure they have their own purposes.
1: <laughs> Let's go through those again. Those were really good. Okay, you want to create culture. Create culture, okay. yeah. Number two.
0: Uh, Use my privilege and power to help oppressed populations.
1: Yeah, use privilege and power to help oppressed populations. We all have
0: our, we are both privileged individuals um, in a Western space, Uh, so here, right? um, Where
1: when we buy a cup of coffee, that same price is what uh, 50% of people around the world make in a day.
0: Right, and we're not the Vietnamese coffee pickers. You're getting poisoned in Vietnam to make that coffee bean to send it to Starbucks, so yes. Uh, That is something. So that's what I can do um, in my own little way. Because these are
1: our brothers and sisters around the world that we want to help uplift. This is us. We are one and working and feeling that um, rather than buying a third car, third house, third boat, watch, whatever. Investing it into the art and entrepreneurship and science and spirituality of people around the world to come up and be uplifted and bring their unique gifts forward. I love that one. Okay, three
0: uh what was uh uh what was uh, so create culture use my public uh what was it uh create what i don't see so uh, sometimes um i want to see things happen i want to uh and maybe this is kind of uh goes into the model minority myth for asians but if i don't see it i'll create it so i believe i can create what i say so if i say it i can create it and so um,
1: how else can you bring your unique gift to the world if it's you know if it's not there we we have to manifest it we have to see the next world that we're going to build and then build that
0: yeah so I've been wanting to be an anthropologist since I was eight years old so since I was eight years old I wanted to see the world I wanted to see different cultures and Um, because I I watch a lot of Star Trek and um, public (laughs) broadcasting, and so it was just, like, really fascinating, and so I I could see those people creating culture, doing things, revealing hidden stories. My last one is is revealing hidden stories, right? And so particularly for um, PBS, right? I, I saw a show where they the interviewer interviewed a a giant African tribe where they're very tall. And then he just drove like, you know, I guess 100 miles away. And it was a a pygmy kind of shorter tribe. And I was like, how is this possible? You know, my eight year old self was like, oh, my God, humans are so diverse and it's so interesting. And then this kind of goes into my Star Trek love in that it's really kind of anthropology show in a way and that it reveals a lot of different cultures and kind of being tolerant and of these cultures and how they have lots to lots of value right and so that's like within all these four probably has something to do with my my sci-fi viewership
1: yeah well those are such four profound ones and I hope that Um, those that are watching can also both relate to and resonate with some of the ones that you mentioned, because I sure do, and then also reflect on our own purposes. What is our unique role here in the world? And if we haven't really established that yet, the importance of like writing it down and really reflecting on it on a daily basis, what our unique gift is to bring to the world. So crucial. Um, Let's dive in. This okay. this was really interesting, learning about this about you. You did another interview, and you sent it over to me, and I was reading it. Mm-hmm. And when I was hearing about this, um, so you were born in Hong Kong mm-hmm. and then came here very young. Three months. Three months To old. the U.S. the U.S. Yes, American citizen. Yes, yes. and then mm-hmm. you grew up in Bellevue. Illinois. Illinois, yes. near Chicago.
0: Yes, it's like a, over an hour away, yes.
1: Okay. <laughs> suburbs. Suburbs. Yes.
0: Working-class suburbs, yes.
1: And then um, you spent a lot of your time working in the Ch- in a Chinese restaurant.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Uh-huh. Interesting, and so then this kind of spurred part of at least a good chunk of this American Chinese restaurant's most uh-huh. recently anthropological study that you're doing uh-huh. um, of really this, like, uh, how in many ways, uh, Chinese diaspora come into very interesting social communities around things like these restaurants, which Mm -hmm. actually have, you were telling me, almost Mm 50,000 Chinese restaurants in the U.S.?
0: More than McDonald's, Burger King and Wendy's combined. That is
1: mind blowing because we see those chain restaurants everywhere, Mm -hmm. but we don't think about counting the the Chinese. And there's all these different the provinces in China have unique foods. Yeah. And so there's all this kind of stuff. Yeah, Yeah.
0: Over 13
1: regional, like
0: Food cu- cultures, Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is so interesting. So take us to um, even in your uh, in the in the childhood. What is it? What was it like being a part of that that node um, in Bellevue when you were growing up and then how it relates to what your studies are today?
0: So a lot of it, I, I think back now, but at the, as a child, I didn't understand. But as a child. <laughs> I, you know, I worked in the restaurant at six, seven, eight, uh, and our customers were primarily working-class Anglo's as well as African Americans, primarily African Americans.
1: How were you doing this at six, seven, eight? Yeah,
0: just take orders. You yeah, take orders. Yeah, just take was orders. this a family restaurant? It was a family restaurant. Mom, yeah. dad, yes, like ran Yes, 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 yes. Because that's yeah. how you
1: did at six, seven, yeah, eight, taking course. orders. You're yeah, like, of course. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. yeah, Yeah.
0: So I was a cultural broker. So my parents didn't speak English, and so I would translate for them, right? And I would, you know, write down orders. And uh, it, it was, I didn't really, I only realized now, but I would code switch and I would, I would translate that culture to my parents who, you know, cooked in the back. And I, I could understand how I had to change differently to each population that I served, right? So for African-Americans, I was a certain way, Anglo-Americans, um, just like kind of things that uh, you learn. Uh, and then of course I would switch my, my I would switch my kind of like my personality to my parents. I'd have to be, you know, thoughtful and very within the Asian culture. I think similar to Armenian. You have to um, I, don't, I don't know how to say say, it, but you have to be respectful yeah. of the family dynamic of your yeah. father has to be the, you know, the king. Right. But it's a strange way to grow up because I had to translate for them. So I in many cases, my father didn't speak English. And so I had to speak for him and do all these things. And not unlike a lot of immigrants around the world who have to be translators like you. You're a translator. You're a cultural broker. And so
1: I, I grew like up there. I like this word cultural broker. Yeah. It's so interesting that you're taking these orders and you're like dealing with one. Uh, and it's not even one. It wasn't just the American melting pot. You were dealing mm-hmm. with a bunch of cultures. Um, you're taking their orders in English, mm-hmm. but a bunch of different cultures. And then you were. Doing a really this is an interesting process for young kids especially to go through with the neuroplasticity that they have their ability to switch all of what you just took in mm-hmm. to then was it was it Mandarin was Cantonese Cantonese, Cantonese. yeah so
0: sort of Cantonese yeah
1: interesting so then you tra- you, yeah. you disseminated that in Cantonese
0: yeah <laughs> and then I went to Catholic school a well, Catholic school has its own regime so uh, I would go to Catholic school every day and. You know, we'd go to church in the beginning and at night, and uh, it has its own cultural norms. Our teachers were nuns and priests, and so I had to change again for that for that environment. Yeah.
1: Yes, yeah, so you're switching yeah. between environments like, like that at a young age. Yeah, that's yeah, really interesting. Yeah, four different cultures
0: a day, I guess.
1: And that <laughs> will say. really quickly um, open up uh, a kid to uh, uh, an understanding of uh, cosmopolitan dynamics, um, openness in general. Um, trying to uh you learn uh, a lot more about uh other people and walks of life gain more empathy and insight into that less xenophobia these types of these types of things
0: i didn't think i realized as a child i just me, i, me I just switched
1: likewise just we never we really never you just
0: change that's how it is you to become survive like, it's like yeah. mid 20s 30s
1: 35 like mid 30s mm-hmm. you kind of realize these most profound things that happened to you when you were young that kind of mm-hmm. shaped And then you, like, call your mom and dad or whatever, and you say, like, thank you so much. That that call did happen. Yeah. yeah. I'm like,
0: thank you. You worked so hard, and you kind of instilled in us a work ethic.
1: So then then there was a dynamic there that was happening where it was kind of like uh, a a central point to a a Chinese community in Bellevue as well. There's no Chinese
0: community. None. None. There was zero. So I was the only unicorn there. Yes, in the school oh. as well, in the whole cities. Oh, in
1: the whole school? Yeah,
0: in the whole city as well.
1: In the city? Yes,
0: I've never seen of anyone. over
1: 10,000 yeah, yeah. people?
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've never seen anyone Asian until I was, uh, you know, later on, like seventh, eighth grade. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so it was. Wow. Yeah. So then feeling, I, I didn't realize this, right, and so I identify with African-Americans because in the Midwestern, there's only two, there's only Anglo or African-American, and so cognitively, I swa- I kind of thought I was African-American until first grade, and I said, Mom, I, we're black, I'm black, and she's like, no, you're not black, and I was, she's like upset, I'm like, but I, <laughs> I know I'm not like everyone else, but uh, she said, I, you know, we're Cantonese, but uh yeah. Wow. So, but I think this is a very common thing for Chinese restaurants in America, in that um, uh, you sort of you ha- your your clients are certain people, and then how you you navigate spaces, and then you start identifying the people that you serve. So. Mm. Yeah.
1: Whoa, okay, so then what was it that then made this, so now it kind of makes sense that you had this upbringing that catalyzed a, a lot of your interest in doing anthropological research on this specific thing, but now, with these findings, I mean this number is staggering in the first place. Fifty thousand Chinese restaurants in the US. That number is staggering. Well, all over the world
0: it's like one of the number one restaurants. It's not just America, it's all over the world there's Chinese restaurants, right? Yeah. Every country. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Whereas like for example, I probably only recently became used to seeing like an Ethiopian restaurant or something mm, yeah. on the yeah. streets. And the food's incredible, but it's much less common though. Way right, less right. common. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, even me talking to someone recently about like German or Austrian food, right? And mm. they were just like, well, what does that taste like? And yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. There's a, such a familiarity with Chinese food. or There know, is. Interesting.
0: It's interesting. China's spending billions of dollars to push their hard cultural power around, you know, trying to d- develop their language schools all over the world. But in a way, their poorest members from China that are migrating around the world is, you know, by surviving and selling different Chinese food is like kind of providing soft cultural power in a way, yeah. Even though it's not directed by anybody, it's, but it's a way of, similar to Korean K-pop, like BTS, that's like Korean cultural uh, soft power, so, but that's kind of, you know, planned a little bit, but um, this is an unplanned kind of um, just cultural dissemination.
1: Yeah, this was also an interesting um, point. Uh, you, you talk about it uh, like, the relationship between food and society yes i really like it phrased that way
0: well um i think in order to understand a culture you should learn the language and you should eat the food and uh, I think these Chinese restaurants around the world—not just in America, but also in Canada, Mexico—because this book, *American Chinese Restaurant*, that's edited by myself and Haiming Liu, it's not just a, a USA story. It's a you know, it's a Latin American story. Chinese restaurants are all over Latin America, right? Wow. Uh, it's a huge th- a, a restaurant. I mean, they have shaped and uh, impacted. Peru, Argentina, uh, Chile, and these are not in the discourse. And um, so, Alan, the reason why I also wanted to edit this book was because every time I read, as an academic, I would read these like stories of racism on Chinese, you know, restaurateurs. You know, they weren't allowed the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act that excluded Chinese people from coming to the U.S. That's true, and, and all these things are right. And I would read these these things, and they would mention Chinese restaurants as the way how the restaurant workers, I'm sorry, the railroad workers, after they were done with the railroad, they couldn't back, go back to China, so they started Chinese restaurants. And I thought that was an interesting story, and wow. definitely interesting. But I, having re- been raised in a Chinese restaurant, knew that there are so many other stories of, positive opportunities for these like poor Chinese people, but also interaction. So a lot of people don't understand that Chinese restaurants are safe spaces for lots of minorities. So Jewish Americans during uh, Christmas time, they go to Chinese restaurants during their uh, birthdays. They go to Chinese restaurants. And so it is a space open to another ethnic group that you know lets them eat their food. And because it doesn't have that much dairy and they're open on Christmas, mm. it becomes and it becomes part of their modernity. Right. And It's not in the history and I want to write about one day is the fact that African-Americans were excluded in so many spaces in America but not Chinese restaurants and so you have a lot of African-Americans who just have these stories of going to Chinese restaurants such as my Chinese restaurant in the Midwest and having these like generational stories and I think that those stories I mean yes there were racism but those other stories of like this massive um, kind of like safe space Mm -hmm. as you say uh, those are not really told in the literature. And, and that's, so that's why I wanted to edit this book. 20 chapters. Sounds like a lot of chapters.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All over the world, yeah. <laughs> well, so that's a really interesting. Um nuance and actually a point that again like you're describing is not necessarily highlighted especially uh, in terms of like mainstream news of so few people are going to want to talk about this the space for for the Chinese restaurant for Jewish people for African Americans to be able to come and enjoy um, uh, at times when maybe they couldn't uh, otherwise And that's really nice. And then that's probably only one of so many other examples. Yeah. Yeah. So give us these other examples.
0: Well, in uh, Latin America, right, um, the it's there's lots of people It's a high population, but it's also a working class population. And so particularly in Chile and Peru and um, different spaces, they actually um, provide a cheap, affordable, and delicious food source for masses of people, right? And so that is something often not talked about, how the price point of Chinese food is actually not expensive, right? I mean, there's higher ones that uh, Haiming Li talks about in uh, P.F. Chang's is like a nicer brand, and there's like all these very high, high restaurants in Hong Kong and Shanghai, but in Latin America all over are inexpensive, like in the United States, like in Canada, are inexpensive, Relatively right in others and that provides a lot of people food at a great entertaining price a low price and particularly for students and yeah. they work and that's mass. It's kind of like ramen. It's like top, you know cup of noodles It's like it mass feeds a lot of people and yeah, yeah. that's what it's done. It's it's really um, mm. good, And it's it's kind of giving it a taste of you know globalization to people in uh, uh, I guess the Caribbean islands, you know mm. Chinese food and of course Africa another way there's a lot of Chinese restaurants now in Africa Africa, they you know, soft power of, I don't think it's intentional, but, you know, they're surviving in these different African countries with Chinese restaurants.
1: Yeah. Whoa. So another part of this is these more, uh, on the end of more affordable prices that also feed quite a lot. So you can have the collegiate students or you can have um, people that gain the ability for, you know, $10 an entree, U.S. dollars here in the States for an entree, can maybe even share that amongst yeah. like, two people or have half of it at home later or whatever and get a taste of the cuisine as well. Yeah. That's an interesting point, too. F-
0: kind of like globalization. Like, you know, they feel yeah. that they're experiencing another culture. It gives them yeah. like a, f- a different thing. Yeah. Y-
1: yet another part of this is um, the actual community that's formed around the Chinese restaurant itself in terms of... Um, the dynamics of uh, if this is like like in this example, maybe in like for your mom and dad, for them starting their restaurant, there were no really other Chinese people in Bellevue. Mm-hmm. Yet, um, it's interesting to think about these other pockets where the restaurant, that Chinese restaurant, actually maybe became like a hub. In mm-hmm. sometimes for other families to come, yeah, um, definitely Chinese families, and you guys could meet and like get to know each other then.
0: We didn't have that experience, but I've, I've read about those people. My cousins lived in another state, Missouri. We, we rarely saw them, but when we saw them, they also owned a Chinese restaurant. Um, I think yeah. it can be a hub for, I've, I've read, you know, for other Chinese, I, I didn't experience that myself, but um, yes, a lot of Chinese restaurants have double menus. And so- What's
1: that?
0: A double menu is, um, there's a rest, there's a menu for Anglo-Americans, which we like Uh, orange chicken, broccoli and beef. uh, And these are things that are not found in China.
1: I was just (laughs) about to ask you this question next. (laughs) They're
0: not found in China. the cuisine
1: difference is big. Yeah. Because this is very Americanized. It
0: is Americanized, Canadianized. Yeah. um, Because we
1: don't have like Beijing ya, Like I loved it when I was there, but (laughs) we don't have that uh, 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 Beijing roast duck. We don't. Okay or we don't like really I've never eaten at a Chinese restaurant in the U.S. where it's been like, you know, Beijing Roast Duck is on the, (laughs) you know. I think you
0: went to Panda Express, I assume.
1: Do they have roast duck? No no, 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 no. It's like a oh, chain. Yeah, yeah. 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 But no, uh, it's super like those ones you were just listing was uh-huh. that. And I love like the more authentic like. Yeah. Like uh, uh-huh. tripe was another one. The cow stomach was mm-hmm. another one with peanut sauce on it. Yeah. There's like a bunch of interesting varieties that are totally not on. So that yet. would
0: be on the Chinese menu.
1: Oh, the and it, double. The <laughs> double you.
0: And so uh, the American menu would, would be orange chicken, right? And there's no orange chicken in China. That's an invention in America. And fortune cookies. There's no fortune cookies in China. None. <laughs> not ever, one, not, not one. one in China. It's, so they would, uh, Jennifer Lee wrote a great book on that. Great, wonderful TED Talk, where she talks about chop suey. Chop suey is big. Chop suey just literally means leftovers, right? And so they're serving this thing to survive in America called chop suey. It's called leftovers, right? And mm-hmm. so that's a thing.
1: Chop suey means leftovers? It
0: does mean leftovers. So you say, oh, if you go to China, you're like, can I have some leftovers? They're like, what? But there's so many Americans who love chop suey, right? And they say, oh, can I have chop suey? And and I've noticed in Canada, they have this thing called uh, Chinese pie, which is equivalent to just shepherd's pie, which is just potato on top. But they call it Chinese pie. Uh And it's not from China. Potatoes are not from China. Chinese people don't rarely eat beef because that's their number one worker. Why do you want to eat your worker like India? You don't want to eat your work. So they don't really serve beef. And then so there's no this Canadian Chinese pie is not Chinese. So it's yeah, that's the the double menu. Yes. And broccoli has never been grown ever in China. So broccoli's
1: was, never been grown no, in China. No, no, they
0: have their own broccoli. They have Chinese broccoli. That's a long stock. The long stock. Yes, I remember that those. is Chinese those broccoli. Those were really yeah. good. I like those. They don't yeah. have the broccoli from Italy.
1: They don't have yeah. the little guys. They don't the have little the little guys. Thick, little yeah. Big broccoli pieces.
0: Yeah, so that in itself is interesting. I think at, Chinatown was next to Little Italy at one point in New York. So maybe that, I don't know the origin, but something must have happened where they started this. Because Chinese food in America is used with American ingredients, right? So it's American ingredients, right? Americans love fried and crispy things with lots of sugar on it. And so those are American palate points, right? And then they love beef in a huge huge quantity. And then broccoli. So yeah, that's a... Those are American items, so it's kind of like I, I was, oh, I'm kind of wondering if you're going to ask me about authenticity.
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is where this con- this is where mm-hmm. this part of the conversation is for sure heading. It's interesting when you're talking about designing for this palette. Well, um, as much as you know, loving you know fried foods and having like sugar, like orange chicken, basically, Just, right? Yes. Just, it also oh. kind of it also kind of like reminds me of like you know if you ever. Um, Maybe you're like fasted for, you know, a couple hours, or if not, maybe even quite a bit. You've intermittently been fasting, and then you eat um, a vegetable of some sort, even like a carrot or a tomato, whatever you eat, right? You eat some sort of vegetable, even a spinach leaf. It really doesn't matter. When you eat it, your palate is like so, um, there's been a delay with the fast that your palate almost tastes tastes the sugar. Mm. in the actual vegetable, right? It tastes how Mm -hmm. sweet the carrot is, or the tomato, the spinach leaf, etc. And training our palates to respect that is very important if we want to live healthy uh, on a day-by-day basis, if we want to live with a good lifespan as well, and a health span, both of those things. And also just, I mean, you can really just it's, a good way to do this experiment is to take something like, you know, a piece of chocolate or something mm-hmm. and take that piece of, uh, ch- after you eat the first spinach leaf, right? You mm-hmm. ate that, you tasted how sweet that was. Then you take the piece of chocolate, you know, put that on your palate and try that. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, wow, that was so much sweeter. And then if you go to the spinach leaf afterward and you taste the spinach leaf, it doesn't taste sh- sweet at all. Right. And so it's because uh-huh. we have this, yeah, this long process of yeah. training our taste buds towards these things that we can also repattern our behaviors um, towards more healthy decisions. So I, I, I appreciate you pointing that out because it also um, hopefully enlightens us to, because, um, to, you know, how do you feel after you eat a plate of orange chicken versus how do you feel when you have, you know, more more vegetable on your plate? Yeah. and um, And I mean, those are really interesting comparisons, but yeah, so the authenticity is also a big one because, um, you know, just coming back uh, from China in September, I oh wow. <laughs> loved, <Great. laughs> loved the food. The hospitality We're in was China. incredible. Spent lots of time in Beijing, spent time in oh. Hangzhou, oh, wow. okay. spent a little bit of time in Shanghai. Okay. Loved it, loved it. And interviewing uh, professors at Peking University and in uh, Wesley University in Hangzhou just oh, wow. was lots and lots of fun. And it was um, the, the level of... Uh, immersion into Chinese culture at the most like deepest roots root level of the psyche of the philosophies mm-hmm. of that type stuff so is very important instead of seeing like the worst thing to do is just to look at like mainstream news and take some sort of a distorted image of what a whole thousands of years of culture actually is mm-hmm. um, so that's probably a big takeaway that I make but also just um, y- like that actually speaks to authenticity as well in terms of just people themselves. Like, you know, I would never just try and like like walk into whatever even if it's a Chinese restaurant or if it's any uh, cultures restaurant and just try and come in with an an image of what that restaurant is based on mainstream media versus Mm -hmm. based on my own experiential ability to ask you questions about who you are, um, where you come from, what the culture is, Mm -hmm. what you love to do in life, what your deepest thoughts are about the nature of this reality. So There's always a better way to get to um, what I think are the roots of people, rather than what looks like distorted images in yeah. the media sphere.
0: So, if um, something I talked to a chef who is trapped in the book, I interviewed a chef um, Martin Yan, and he we talked about authenticity a lot, because you know, that's always the critique of, of these Chinese restaurants around the world that they're not authentic, they're not in China, they're not um, they're kind of these orange chicken, you know, fortune cookie things made up, right? But I think we both agree that these places were places of survival. And so these uh, different communities, um, this is what the people wanted to eat. They do not want to eat cow tongue, right? Or the stomachs, right? Mm-hmm. So this is what they had to serve in order to survive. And uh, oh, and yeah. a lot of times they didn't work. Uh, they didn't get paid. Our, like, for instance, I was never, my sister and I, we were never paid, right? We just worked for our parents all the time. Yeah. They, and my, my, sister, my mother was also working there. She also didn't get paid. And so, you're doing this to survive and so that is what your clientele wants and so that's what you have and mm. and i respect my parents were doing this um, they didn't have a culinary background they just went into the midwest and opened a restaurant and so but it enabled us to survive um i have a, a phd all my cousins who have um they all have doctorism and mm. uh upper degrees and all of our family members are well some of them were chinese restaurant workers and owners and so enabled to survive into the next, uh, next uh, generation.
1: Yes. So. Do you see other sorts of um, macro trends around um, the way that uh, during diasporic moments that uh, families create restaurants, what they know? They know their food. So they make the restaurant, so that they can use it as a mechanism of survival mm-hmm. and also sharing culture. Yeah, is that like a frequent macro?
0: I think scenario? so. It's like a, it's kind of. I think Jennifer Lee talked about it. Chinese food is like a free app that everyone can get, yeah. and and it's spread like Linux. It's like everywhere. Um, it, I, mean, I mean, over fifty thousand. That's a lot of restaurants, yeah. right? And so. Um, That's something, I think, being Chinese, that's your cultural right. You have your cultural right to your food, and so that's something you know, right? You know your language and your food, and that's something that you could, I don't want to call it sell, but it's something that you can use to survive. And I think that's, yeah, so I'm glad you asked that question. Yeah, Yeah. It is definitely a macro trend that people, um, I I don't understand. But I was going to say that a lot of these Chinese peoples, it's a way of coming home to this imagined homeland. because. To be honest, all these Chinese people around the world—the global diaspora. So, so, if we're saying sixty to seventy percent of the earth is Asian, let's say twenty, almost twenty-three percent of the earth is Chinese, right? So, almost one in four people, or at least you know twenty percent. When you eat Chinese food, you can eat an imagined homeland, right? So, yeah. there's like some energy level um, of taste that you can—you know—your grandmother ate those, you know, Armenian. Um, items and then she loved it and then your father and you and so you you feel this like connection and I think that yes I definitely agree it's like some sort of macro spreading but with kind of a a homeland feel yes
1: (laughs) this is again in the ability of the person that um, not only yeah um, goes and has the moment of wanting to provide what their um, culture uh, can uh, bring to the area that they move to, but also the person that comes um, from that local area to experience that culture and their food. You made this clear at the very beginning, too, is that you, you learn a bit of the language, learn a bit of the food, ask good questions. Don't just come to this um, restaurant without inquiry into the deeper levels of the roots of the people and the culture and wanting mm-hmm. to learn. Because it's a missed opportunity to learn. Yeah. And if we mm-hmm. can instill that curiosity in children to want to learn, even at mm-hmm. the level of just a restaurant, when they go and they learn about the food and they learn about the culture, et cetera, it'll make it so that the world becomes more of that one community. That, Definitely. Yeah. Um, I also. I also want. I also want to ask you this question because, given the amount of, I don't know if there's been study into this, given the amount that um, small, medium-sized businesses around the world are, yes, some are coming up, but most of them are going away due mm-hmm. to um, uh, the increased amount of massive corporations taking um, mm-hmm. stock in um, their ability to uh, deliver. Uh, groceries deliver restaurant food Mm -hmm. soon it's already being tested to be done by autonomous cars and robots and drones and all different types of um, delivery mechanisms like that Um, given that do you foresee something also occurring or has there been any study with that number of 50,000 restaurants potentially and that's just in the US but around the world slowly potentially declining and needing to find other work and all this other kind of stuff
0: I would say absolutely not for Chinese food. Number one, Chinese food, the price point, you can't reproduce it for that price point with a machine, right? Um, the, the, how Chinese restaurants work is a lot of unpaid labor, right? And a lot of, and it's down the line how they get their items and it's how, all- How
1: do they, if there's unpaid labor, how do those people uh, live if they're unpaid?
0: Well, their like family. yeah, they're family. Like I, I wasn't paid.
1: <laughs> but it, only family, because then, because then the mm-hmm. father, although you're on paid, pays for the rent and right, the, uh, right. Yeah, and, yeah, and that kind the, of stuff. Yeah, so
0: okay. I, I don't see a machine, because if we, if you actually really paid people what they work, right? The the prices for a Chinese restaurant. Those items, like even orange chicken, would be triple the price, right? Even in reproducing it in a in a form that is mass produced, will never be the same. I don't want to say quality, but that I don't want to say authenticity, but that traditional recipe cannot be reproduced, right? Um, What you had in Beijing cannot be reproduced in a mass Swanson, right, or something, you know? And I I just don't see it happening because. Particularly, I think just Chinese people are very hardworking, as all people are, but they're very, uh, they will go, they will, uh, they, I, I don't see it. I, I think that no machine can reproduce a traditional, there's like, you know, over 12 food cultures in China. They can, they cannot. cannot, I, I don't see, I don't see it. Yeah. And, and for I, that I
1: do which is interesting re- interesting I, I, okay i see, I see nothing oh, <laughs> i see nothing the the uh-huh. the area of what human expertise has uh advantage uh over mm-hmm. ai and automation mm-hmm. robotics that area is very rapidly decreasing mm. um and i uh i i do foresee mm. some people being able to like you know, grapple on for, like, the last couple of, like, these decades that are, that it's coming. Mm -hmm. But even then, um, I, like, it's pretty clear to me that um, within a 100 years, the definition of, like, work is gonna be so much different. There's gonna be just, there's gonna be a lot more, um, uh, one could say, like, art or play yeah. or um, that kind of, and oh, this is in the most brightest possible future, there's lots of other right. futures where there's uh, you know, bifurcation based on socioeconomic status of people, mm-hmm. um, the ones that own the AI and the automation and the ones that don't.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so there's gotta be a, a heart-centric consciousness evolution that we focus on where we uplift all of us and we distribute the mm-hmm. fruits of the emerging technologies yeah. so that way Everyone has their ability to bring unique gifts forth, live a prosperous, peaceful, dignity-oriented yeah. and driven life, and hopefully have AI, robotics, automation just augment um, for now uh, until we then decide what is the next evolutionary step after that, which in many ways could be um, what, the, what humanity is, a biological mm-hmm. bootloader for that next uh, step of a digital style superintelligence. Mm-hmm. I hope
0: you're right in that we're all uplifted. That's that, the crucial we all, part. Yeah. Everyone <laughs> gets yes. the fruits of yeah. AI, yeah.
1: Yes, yes, this is paramount.
0: Yeah. This is paramount, yes. So I'm yeah. happy okay. <laughs> i, love it. I love it. I'm happy we agree
1: on that. I love it. I'm happy we agree on that. I want to um, ask you this too, Jenny. So um, you have passion for helping first- generation college students with their barriers and bridges to college success specifically Southeast Asian American mm-hmm. and you were teaching me about this this is really really important um, given so much of people moving like diaspora moving across the planet and then trying to seek uh, a, a, a b- being able to actually bring their unique gifts forth um, there are barriers there are challenges that, that Obstacles to overcome. How have you seen that process and been able to catalyze assistance with that and help?
0: Um, as I mentioned, I was a, I was a Chinese little eight-year-old uh, cultural broker like you, and uh, and so you, one could argue a professor is a cultural broker. And so one of the things I've realized being Asian American, a type of tribe, in <laughs> or I don't know because. I guess I could be part of the human tribe, whereas 70% of humans are Asian, or all humans, you know, 100%. But um, Asian Americans in particular, I don't know the Canadian situation, but Asian Americans in America uh, are called the model minority. And they're called the model minor minority because on aggregate, they have the highest uh, graduate uh, graduation rates in college, over 55%, right? So 55% of all Asian-Americans have a college degree. Wow. And within that, you have like South Indians and Taiwanese-Americans that have an 80% graduation rate with additional um, uh, graduate de- degrees like PhDs, uh, uh, doctors, lawyers, et cetera. And so, and also as an aggregate, uh, Asian Americans have the highest income in terms of making over uh, 60,000, 70,000 a year, which is quite yeah. a lot in comparison to the average American, right? So if you look at that number, you think, oh, Asian Americans, they're the model minority. They're doing wonderful, doing great, right? But when you just aggregate the numbers, you actually see that it's, um, it's actually not correct, not true at all, because number one, Asian Americans, a lot of them don't speak English and they don't fill out these census forms. Asian-Americans live in uh, multi uh, multifamily households. So if 17 people are making $2,000 a year, that's still gonna show up more than you know one person with a nuclear family, right? And of course, a lot of those people will not even report their income, right? And so mm-hmm. the numbers are incorrect. But in particular, if you look at Southeast Asians, um, the Hmong, the Mian, the Kamu, uh, Cambodians, Filipinos, Vietnamese, and also low-income Chinese, Japanese, um, uh, Vietnamese uh, people, uh, Americans, they actually are in high poverty rates where 70% of them report um, uh, having a traumatic food or um, poverty ridden uh, situation where they cannot, um, they cannot uh, you know, help themselves if they had a big th- issue, right? And so particularly for Southeast Asians, they have one of the lowest graduation ro- rate with around 11 to 14, which is much lower than um, the American national average.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is an important breakdown. It takes something that's viewed as a, like you said, a model minority group, and it breaks it down. And there are some incredible practices that happen, people coming over with motivation and determination and perseverance and grit to get to, to actualize those gifts and want to, so there's some great things there. But when you do, you know, open that up, double click in, look at the breakdowns, um, there is some serious um, issues that have happened with um, po- with uh, specific pe- peoples as diaspora coming to other par- parts of the world where there is v- many of the time diaspora comes from some sort of a violence or war or you know these yeah
0: yes genocides genocides yes. Yes. and then
1: and then trauma is is there from f- through family lineages and then we're carrying that trauma with us that needs to be healed, and we need to evolve and grow through that and heal it. And um, yes, otherwise, uh, we have a, uh, we have a, we have this we have this feeling that comes when we encounter other, uh, other humans where there's just something that is um, it's it's not whole, it's not it's not full-hearted there's still something there and and but then there's all this like closed offness with the process of trying to heal it it's got to be the right person at the right time with the right circumstances right. and all this type of stuff so how do we catalyze environments as frequently as we see chinese restaurants uh-huh. why don't we have holistic healing centers in the that would same, be
0: great i would love that that's
1: a social fabric i want to build you know that's what we want ev- that's what we want to envision
0: that would be wonderful for you to <laughs> build that
1: why is we yeah. we will do it because Why is it that on the streets there are so many options for food, but so little places for our emotions? Mm -hmm. It's a disaster that that's like that. Our emotions Mm -hmm. have taken the most absolute backseat place in the economic machinery. Now instead of being able to talk with someone about uh, the true, most visceral feelings at my deep depths of my psyche. Now I like, you know, and this is a trusted person. Now uh, I'm concerned, but but when I, you know, pay a therapist to try and like make sure that they're not like self-dealing when they also want to prescribe me a pharmaceutical and there's all this type of, you know, indigenous people are trying to like wake up, wake up, heal, heal. There are processes Mm -hmm. of healing that we've been doing for millions of years and that can be leveraged for um, making it so that these breakdowns of minority groups that you're talking about that um, aren't as this, uh, uh, don't have $60,000 a year salaries, um, that they themselves can actually uh, heal and then can achieve their unique gifts that they can bring to the world. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm really happy that you bring that up as well. That's a really interesting point. So, um, American Chinese Restaurants Society, Culture, and Consumption is out. Yes. It's available. The link's in the bio below. It's
0: on Amazon, Walmart, um, but Amazon is probably the easiest place to get it. (laughs)
1: Link in the bio below. Um, Jenny, I want to ask you another question. One more. Okay. (laughs) What do you think is most beautiful?
0: What a lovely last question. Hmm. What is you've been asking a lot of these, what is the most? So what a uh, what is the most beautiful? Um mm. so many things that are beautiful. Um hmm. Well, i I think that things in nature are very beautiful. I don't know about the most again. Like, what is the most, right? Um, I think nature is very beautiful. Um, being in nature, things that all around me are in a forest, those are truly beautiful places like Yosemite, where I'm, I live very close to, are very beautiful. Um, so, those are beautiful things, and you feel like the forest can heal you. It's yeah. been there for thousands of years, and I think. Those are very beautiful. And then if you're with your family in the forest, then I, you're also going to feel even more beautiful. So um, I, I, I really like nature. And um, those, I think that area, nature with your family, I think those are beautiful moments. Yeah. Yes. Yes.
1: We highly recommend people to visit uh, Vancouver as well. British Columbia, I mean, oh. like looking across towards n- North Vancouver here. Uh, it's the beautiful. M- the mountains and the ocean and the trees, I mean, it all speaks. It all speaks and communicates. The um, energy. The energy. It's the energy, yeah. it's
0: good energy. It tells you that you're not alone, that you're actually part of thousands of years, and yes. you know, your problem might be big to you now, but I'm a tree and I'm hundreds of years old. <laughs> I'm thousands of years old, so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so.
1: Yeah. And it's all so deeply interconnected. And just to remember to embody that interconnection and unconditional love, deep presence. Yeah. Yeah. Jenny, (laughs) this has been such a great interview. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks Thanks for coming on the program.
0: Thanks for asking me. (laughs) You're
1: super welcome. Thanks for all your great work. Thanks everyone for tuning in. We greatly appreciate it. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below on the episode. Let us know what you're thinking on all of the cool things that Jenny was teaching us. Let us know your thoughts. Check out the links in the bio below to Jenny's work. Also check out the links in the bio below to American Chinese restaurants. You can use the code as well in the bio below. Check that out. And also s- check out the links in the bio below to the American Anthropological Association and support them. Support their incredible annual meeting. And support simulations. We continue doing cool things like coming on site to great places like AAA's annual meeting and conducting these epic partnership interviews. You can find us on PayPal, Patreon, Cryptocurrency. All those links are in the bio below. And go and build the future, everyone. Manifest your dreams into the world. We love you very much. Thank you for tuning in. And we will see you soon. Peace. That's a wrap.
0: <laughs> okay. Good job. Thank you so much. Good job.
1: Good job. Good job. Good job.